I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day folks, Wayne Rubin here, and welcome to this episode of Hard Yards in Leadership. As you know, we love to explore the hard yards that folks have from the world of business, and we've had folks from military and not-for-profit and various other segments, and today we bravely step into the world of high-performance and elite sport. Very special guest on board today is John Buchanan. John is most well-known as the head coach of the Australian cricket team, a role that he had for eight years from 99, during which he had extraordinary success. He was also dealing with some very big name players and had his challenges along the way. John shares with great authenticity a lot of the steps in his journey to getting to that role, including when he was first made the coach of the Queensland Bulls, the Queensland Sheffield Shield team, and had to walk in as a brand new coach to a dressing room with the likes of Alan Border and, and other names in the true elite of the elite of, of Australian sport. And suffice to say, some of the early things didn't go so well in his work with, with Alan Border, but he shares how he worked through that and held his vision and um, was able to bring the likes of AB on board with, with his way. John shares about the time that he was invited to go to Middlesex in, in England as coach and how that was a great opportunity that unfortunately square-wheeled pretty fast when he tried to do too many things too quickly and that was not really uh, well accepted by either the captain or the governance of, of Middlesex. So came back from that very quickly. And then his rise to become the coach of the Australian cricket team and whilst he was extraordinarily successful as the coach of the Australian cricket team, John shares some of the really interesting challenges and real hard yards that he had behind the scenes, both with players and media, and also a fascinating story with one of his first encounters with the CEO of Australian Cricket, but let's just say did not go as planned. You're going to find John extraordinary to listen to. He's very honest. He has great insight into the challenges that he faced, and I'm sure whatever whatever world you come from, you will find parallels to the challenges that John shares with the challenges that you face in your life. So without any further ado, let me say a huge welcome to the show, John Buchanan. Thanks, Ryan. Lovely to be here. Ryan. It's indeed a great pleasure to have uh, have you on, and I've been looking forward to, to having this conversation. As you know, in, in Hard Yards and Leadership, we talk about things that people have found hard in their leadership journey, and um, you're officially our first sporting coach on board, so I've been really looking forward to having having this conversation. So, John, I was keen to ask you, you know, a, a lot of people will be aware of of certain things that you've, you've done in your career, but you didn't suddenly become the Australian cricket coach. I'm sure there's a path of being in leadership roles and having more and more responsibility that eventually got you to that point. Can I ask you to take the listeners back to the early days of John Buchanan and, and when you first found yourself in sort of leadership-style positions? Yeah, thanks, Wayne. I, I, I won't want to bore everybody too much, but, um, yeah, I suppose my journey to the Australian head coach role started when I was probably five years old in the backyard 
growing up on the Gold Coast. As a single child in the family, uh, I had a wonderful backyard. My father had uh, built a barbecue with a big brick wall that became my arena for playing tennis, cricket, football, whatever the sport might be. But in doing that, it was me creating, you know, images, game scenarios, commentary, shots, extraordinary plays, all those sorts of things in the backyard. And and part of that growing up was certainly always a dream of playing cricket for Australia, wearing the bag of grand. We used to bring boys out from a boarding school that was nearby and, and we'd have test matches on the weekend. And, you know, my father had created a... Uh, a net in the backyard. That's where we lived our our passions and our dreams. And with an old ABC cricket book, you know, writing down the scores and picking names out of a hat to put in your side, and and then you you tried to mimic the particular player that might be batting at the crease or might be bowling. So that was kind of where it all began. And I I just kept chasing that dream for as long as I possibly could. Uh, finally made a Queensland team in the in the late 70s, just at the end of the Packer era, but really found at that point in time it was one thing to dream, it was another thing to necessarily have all the, all the skills and everything else you needed to be successful at that level. So that dream sort of vanished and I, I went off into the world of partly what my degree was for and became a recreation officer um, in the Townsville City Council up North Queensland and then came back to and, and married at that stage, came back to Brisbane and became part of a sports management section of the 12th Commonwealth Games in Brisbane. And then I thought, you know, the, the dream will be to be a fantastic sports administrator. So I became national director for Australian volleyball after the Games. They decided to move the office to Canberra and we were, we were very much homebodies, I suppose. We had two young children at that stage, so we weren't leaving Brisbane. So I, I then went to TAFE, got a teaching degree there and, and went into teaching in TAFE and uh, probably found there that because, I, in my mind, I'd, I'd had a bit of a silver spoon being a, a private boys' school and boarding school and the, the children, not children, young adolescents that I was teaching had really a, a very, very tough and inverted commas background because at school they were really at the bottom end of their grade. They probably either weren't involved in sport or had been told that they were no good at sport and basically their life was telling them they really uh, didn't have much of a chance. So they were gathered up by a, a program called a, a pre-vocational skills program that the federal government organised and then placed into TAFE where they would experience all the various trades plus this area that I was involved in, which was called human skills. Uh, it was about fitness, about health, about deportment, about a range of things, all the things that they were told they were no good at. So I, I probably found that I, I just didn't necessarily quite relate to, to them. I, I just didn't believe I was the right person uh, for them as a teacher because I, I just couldn't really understand what they had gone through and therefore how I could best help them. So so then we... we uprooted and, and headed to Canada where I, I got a master's in uh, 
in administration, sport and, and business organisational theory and so on, and brought that back to Canberra where I was lecturing at the university down there for a couple of years. But always we always wanted to get back to Brisbane, Queensland, so I eventually came back and I was managing a program for the Department of Tourism, Sport and Racing called Aussie Sports, which was a fantastic children's program where it, it was the modification of adult sport, adult rules, adult behaviour, equipment and so on, and, and making it a very enjoyable experience for young children as they came into the sport. So that was the idea. If you can enjoy something, no matter what it is, at the beginning and, uh, and your early experiences, and you're more likely to continue on. So did that for a period of time. And then suddenly a, a job came up, which was the coach of the Queensland Bulls. And as I said, I, I played for Queensland in the late 70s, so this was about 17 years on since then, and I'd, I'd kind of been in and out of cricket a little bit, coaching my uh, young uh, boy and, and daughter who were just starting to come through as young people into into a club and, and helping out the club, putting together the sort of cricket programs and a bit based on the Aussie sport program that I've been involved in. And... Um, I went to a friend of mine, Ian Healy, who was Vice Captain Australia at the time, and I'd coached him many years ago, and just sort of said, you know, are they, are they serious about the job? Because Jeff Thompson, uh, a legend of Australian cricket, had been coached there for four years, and Queensland had done okay, but they still hadn't won a Sheffield Shield in 69 years of trying, and he said yes, no, they were serious. Um, and I said, the second question I've got for you, if hypothetically, if I applied and then hypothetically I was given the job, would you guys give me the opportunity to coach? So, you know, there was the likes of Border was coming back to play for Queensland, Healy was there, McDermott was there, a number of other players who'd played one-day cricket for, for Australia and so on. So it was, a, it was an experienced group of players and a, and a really good group of young guys coming through. And he said, look, you know, we'll give you an opportunity, but, you know, you've got to actually demonstrate you can do the job. So anyway, I applied. I was given the privilege to coach the Bulls. This is 94-95 and it. As it turned out, at the end of that season, we won the Sheffield Shield for the first time. So that was an amazing experience. And then I stayed with Queensland for five years and I got to a point where it was, in my mind, time to move on because I always believed that there's a sort of a shelf life in leadership or certainly a shelf life in coaching if, if you get the choice. And so I applied for the Australian job. So going right back to that five-year-old, uh, here I was now applying to become part of that Australian cricket team, albeit not on the field, but pretty close to the field as head coach. And uh, in 99, I was appointed head coach and then stayed with that team for eight years till I retired in uh, 2007 at the end of the World Cup in the, in the West Indies. So that was a bit of a snapshot of, in terms of that journey getting there. Yeah, gosh, a, a lot happened then. And John, you know, you shared what is far from being a straight line between the little kid that I dreamed of playing for Australia to when, like you said, you, you were part of the Australian team, if, even if if not on, on the field, but but extraordinarily close to it. I guess the first thing I just want to unpack a little bit there is through all of that time as you kind of, you know, took different roles and advanced your career with different studies and whatever else, were you always chasing that that dream? Was it kind of a burning desire that, that you had all the way along that that path? Yes. No, I think that dream, had, uh, that part of the dream had evaporated in terms of cricket. You know, I thought, you know, once I was not playing cricket for Australia, then I didn't really see 
any other avenues. So the avenues then became me dreaming about, well, I, either I'll be, a, you know, a, a great sports administrator or I'll be a, you know, a professor in, in university or I'll be a director general when I came back into um, the Department of Tourism, Sport and Racing. So the dreams, if you like, some would burst, but I, I guess it's always been part of my philosophy to have a picture about where you're going, uh, a vision that, that should be pretty aspirational whether it's me or whether it's other leaders or whether it's an organisation or a team, and, and then you go about chasing that till either you're within reach or uh, something comes along that, as I say, bursts that bubble and, and then you've got to reset and readjust and realign and, and rethink and, and head, again, head off again. And, uh, and to do that, of course, I, I had mentioned, I, I had to have a, an incredibly patient, tolerant, uh, loving wife and family so we ended up with five children so without their support in terms of me being a bit of a flippy gibbet in, in in many respects you know going in one direction and suddenly that's not quite working for whatever reason then I'm I'm sort of angling in another direction and, and off we go again they just kept believing in me and uh, that was that was huge support and and it in the end it did enable me then to recreate I suppose this picture in my mind about being a, a cricket coach, a head coach, and, and 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 the ability then, if that was a dream, well, how do I do it? So it gave me that that time to reflect back on everything that had been part of my life. My parents, as I mentioned, were mm. grew up on the coast and teachers and people I'd played with, and then going to university and all the ups and downs and being in that Queensland team for a little period of time, and then and then. Um, you know, it's kind of getting a feel for what that was like, but understanding too that I just didn't fit both skill-wise and I don't think um, in terms of my own mental approach to it, I just didn't fit. And so then rolling that forward with all the various other experiences and, and, and all those pieces, good and bad, were what formed my coaching philosophy and therefore that's what I was able then when I applied for that job for Queensland, present that to the people who are looking to appoint a coach and show them that there is a different way to going about coaching as it had been and that I was going to bring that to the table. And, John, just exploring that because I guess, and part of what I just want to unpack here is some names, conscious that some of our listeners won't be won't be so familiar with the world of cricket. So the Queensland Bulls is the Queensland Sheffield Shield or state team, and I guess state versus state cricket has been something that is it's kind of like it's the foundation of kind of first first grade cricket in, in, in Australia, isn't it? And when you applied for the job, you'd mentioned that Jeff Thompson, extraordinary legend of Australian cricket and an ex-player, had been in, in that job for a period. And it was probably relatively common at that time for coaches to, to be ex-players. I guess the, the first thing I want to ask you is your credentials at the moment that you, you know, put your, your hat in the ring for coach of Queensland Bulls was perhaps not the conventional, not the conventional look. How did you kind of like have the confidence to put that application forward and and be able to convince people that you could do the job? So I guess you can go to any industry and, and most, in, in a sense, most industries will have people sitting at the top of the tree that have had long-term experience in that industry and therefore, you know, they've kind of walked in the shoes of a lot of a lot of people. I suppose when you get right at the top, there are a lot of people who 
the shoes they walk in is is their corporate experience and, and how to run a, a big organisation irrespective of what the industry or the sector might be. But but certainly in a, in a sporting sense, and it, it's still pretty much the same, that you have needed to demonstrate that you've played the game because therefore in some people's minds you know what players are going through and you're in a better position to relate to them and therefore coach them as individuals and coach them as a team. So knowing that I didn't have that uh, length of pedigree, albeit a, a, a little piece, I needed to go out and actually understand how I coach and, and that's what I was just saying there before. Mm-hmm. So my, my first step was in applying for the job, well, John, how do you coach? What do you believe in? What's your values, your principles, your cornerstones, you know? And then if you understand those, uh, well, how's that going to play out in, in a head coach's role? So I sort of, in those days, was I used to run a lot. So I went to my quiet place, which was out running and, and thinking through all those sorts of questions so that when I came to an interview, I was very clear on what I was going to bring to the table as opposed to what was already on the table. And uh, that was basically one of my leading quests or leading statements, I think, to the panel, and, and that was that if they wanted a coach to win the Sheffield Shield or, you, again, you could go into business or anybody that follows the Wallabies at the moment through the, the current World Cup, if all you want is a result this year or, you know, this quarter or, um, in a short period of time, then I'm not the person for you. You know, keep doing what you're doing, find somebody that uh, has legendary status or huge credibility in terms of the industry or, in this case, cricket, the man. But I said if if you want something different, if, if you want us to create um, a system here in Queensland, which I said would allow us to dominate domestic cricket for the next 10 years, then I believe I can deliver that for you. That's that's my goal. And I said in there, because we will understand better how we go about producing performance and improving performance and, and, and a whole range of things like that, then somewhere in there we'll win a Sheffield Shield. I, I couldn't say when, but I, I'd say we, not only could we win one, but we'd actually better understand how that occurred and therefore we're in a better position to see whether we can repeat that. So that was kind of the approach to the the interview panel and and, uh, it seems like they listened. And John, can you take us back to, you know, when you first met the playing group? Because you you mentioned, I mean, some extraordinary players in the team at at that point, Alan Border at at, at the top of the list. You know, these are classic moments where a lot of people would, would think, you know, imposter syndrome thoughts. It's kind of like, okay, I've got the job, but oh my God, I've got to walk into into all of these people and kind of be the role of coach. And that means I'm essentially steering them around. And am I actually able to do this? I mean, did you have any of those thoughts? How, how was that time for you, you know, as you kind of built up to that exact moment? Yeah, look, I, I, I reckon I would have had those thoughts every day, you know, because for, for exactly that reason. 
the, the traditional coach was a, a Jeff Thompson and, and uh, you know, people with a heck of a lot of uh, playing background. And here I was, yeah, walking into likes of an Alan Border, who, again, for those who don't follow cricket, but whatever your industry or whatever your sector is, have a look in there and you'll find legends of your industry, you know, legends of your sector. Well, he was one of those in cricket and uh, suddenly he's a novice coach with minimal experience playing and, and no first-class experience coaching and he's going to come in and, and uh, tell a legend what to do. So, so yeah, those sorts were always there. But one, I believed, I was very clear, as I said, uh, what my philosophy was and, and therefore what we were going to do to begin to enact that. But, of course, it's, it's still a lot of experimentation, you know, it, it, because... In the end, we were, I was introducing computers which had never been done before. We were changing our training systems around, which hadn't been done before. I was actually talking to the playing group about getting them to help me to be vulnerable and say, look, I haven't been around for 16 or 17 years, but I need your help because, you know, I wanted to, to even fill around the edges about travel times or about what dress code we should be wearing, you know, little things like that. <clears throat> and, I, and so I needed all the players to input on that and so try to buy them into what we're doing, our, our gym training sessions. I'm, I made sure that I turned up to every one of them so that I was I was seen to be there. It wasn't just somebody telling you what to do. This person actually believed in it themselves and, and wanted to be part of it. And we mentioned Border the Legend there before, and I mentioned experimentation, and I also mentioned computers for the first time. So, you know, uh, I think it was after about three or four games, and we'd gone reasonably well. So I thought it was about time that because the players were kind of inquisitive, here we were while games were going on, sitting in the viewing area with these sort of computers in front of us, and why would you be doing that? You know, what's going on? So I decided that I'd actually provide them with a little bit of a uh, handout after a training session one day in the, when they returned to the dressing rooms and, and and it was there just to say, well, look, this is part of or the beginning of what we're intending to do. We, we're actually trying to analyse the game far better than what's ever been done before and uh, to do that, you know, it'll gather data and, and the data will give us uh, information not only about the opposition but also give us information about ourselves. So, so I gave them a little bit of a handout and Alan Border had a, a, had a corner of the room where he sort of camped himself and, and it became sort of known as Border's Corner because all the younger guys would, would love to, to gravitate over and have a chat with him, you know, pre-training or after training or whatever and, and, and Alan was... Uh, Exceptionally good because he just loved talking about cricket and, and so that was a great place and a great exchange of, you know, experience and knowledge and wisdom to youth and enthusiasm and, and uh, naivety to some degree and, and mixing the two together. But So he, he had a look at this uh, sheet of paper and here's this uh, novice coach uh, thinking, wow, Alan Board, it doesn't matter what sort of question you're going to ask me, it's just going to elevate me in the presence of everybody here that, He's got a question and now I can ex explain it and, and everybody can hear it. So he sort of walked towards me and, and looked at me and I'm just waiting for the question, but he crumpled up the, the uh, piece of paper and threw it at my feet and then walked back to his corner, <laughs> at which time, I, you know, I was just devastated, obviously. Just sort of retreated out of the room, couldn't say anything, didn't know what to say. But, you know, that was one of those learning experiences where, 
yeah, one, it showed that I didn't really understand the, the players well enough and, and E.G. and Alan Border, you know, because he's a guy that knows his game inside out. So, you know, what's a piece of paper going to do for him at this stage of his career? He just needs to go prepare himself and go out and play. But it also probably told me, you know, all the things that you tried, not all of them are going to work, you know, but the important thing is that you keep experimenting. But you've generally got to find ways in which your experiments are either given the best chance of success or if they miss, then do they miss because it's the wrong thing or do they miss because you actually presented it the wrong way and at the wrong time. So, so they're you know, just really good learning experiences, even out of just that single event. Like it's a, it's a wonderful story to share, you know, and so many of us have been there in that sort of situation, you know, change, change the setting, change the names, but like in that, in that same setting. I'm fascinated, John, how, how did you kind of patch yourself back up together? Because, you know, a lot of people would just, you know, walk out the door and keep going, but you, you obviously didn't do that. You've somehow dusted yourself off and, and gone back in and, and regrouped. What were the next steps for you? Well, one of the next steps was to, to uh, catch up with Alan. Maybe it was the next day or the day after and, and, and just come to an understanding of how we both would best operate. You know, I was trying to explain to him what we're doing and he then explained to me, he said, yeah, that's great. You can do that for everybody else, but don't worry about me. I'm, you know, I'm okay. I don't need that, that piece of paper. So provided that you, you don't sort of lump me with stuff that is irrelevant to me, you know, I, I'm okay, but happy uh, for you to do that for other people who you think it might be, be relevant. So the beauty about sport, but I think it's the beauty about business is that, you know, we were then maybe into training the next day again. So what was important was to, again, demonstrate, okay, made an error in terms of presenting this this new piece of information, but our training won't be an error that things will fall into place nicely and everybody will have a good session and, and walk away feeling like that session was good and, and so on. So, again... You know, athletes move on very, very quickly, provided that, you know, their their needs, if you like, are being looked after. And, and I think from, as I say, from business point of view, business is in competition every day. So it really doesn't have, it wouldn't have much time to linger on that particular instance, provided that I think the leader then the next day, however, you know, short huddle with, with a group of people, acknowledges the fact, yeah, poor decision or maybe a good decision to, to give you information, just poor delivery. But here's how we're setting up today for success and these are the things that you need to do and let's move into the day. So, yeah, I, I think uh, partly, again, in, in answer to your question, I don't think I dwelt on it too long, although I am a thinker and, and I am a person that uh, worries about how people think of you. I think most people are, but, you know, I... I threw himself back into the detail of getting things moving along in other areas so that everybody was in receiving what they, they needed to receive so that they were getting themselves ready for the next competition. And I think that's what all leaders can do. You know, you, the lesson still sits with me. It's not as though it was ever forgotten, but it was, it was time to, to um, understand that that was a moment in time that uh, I could learn from and, and that would be, uh, you know, an ongoing lesson for me, but, but I had to deal with what was in front of me, you know, and I think that's an important thing about 
about leadership and coaching then, but, you know, you've got to have one foot in the future. As I said, I, I really believe in understanding where you want to go, the picture, and, and, and make it as stimulating and as aspirational as possible. But your other foot's got to be in the present, you know, so you actually got to deal with what's right in front of you now and make sure that you can get through that because if you don't get through that, you're probably never going to head to the future anyway. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. So, John, let's let's continue with the story. And there's a whole bunch of things that I'm keen to unpack about your experiences, but I'm sure everyone would would know that. Um, and we've mentioned that that you were to go on to become the head coach of of the Australian cricket team, which is probably you know for non Australians listening, they say the Australian cricket captain is uh, is second only to the Australian Prime Minister in the importance of their their role in Australia. And I'd, I'd venture to suggest head coach isn't very far behind that. So it's a uh, an extraordinary high-profile role. Australia takes its sport pretty seriously and the Australian cricket team has long had a, a culture of, of being, you know, expected to win, I guess. So can I ask you to share a little bit of your story of when you first applied for and got the role of head coach of Australian cricket team and what it was like coming into, because now there weren't one or two legends in the room. Uh, it, was a, it was a room bursting with legends, right? Yes, it was. Look, uh, as I said, w- with the Queensland job, in, in, in fact, um, the year before, so I had five years with Queensland, so it was in that fifth year that uh, I was able to apply for the Australian job. But the year before, as I said, I, I, I just felt always that there is a shelf life in leadership and I, and I was looking for things to challenge me, which I felt if I'm getting challenged, then I can at least maintain that within the group that, that I had. And, and I'd gone to England as to coach Middlesex uh, County Crew Club over there because they'd said, look, we see what you're doing with Queensland. We'd like you to come over and do the same thing for us. So sort of finished the, the Queensland season in, in March and then landed into England in April and then spent the uh, April to September with Middlesex and then came back to Queensland in September to start my fifth season. The Middlesex experience was um, not a good one for a range of reasons, but put simply... I tried to, to make change too quickly, even though that was the agenda. I tried to make change too quickly and didn't ensure that I had the new captain who was just appointed as captain of Middlesex that year, like by name Mark Rambrakesh. I didn't spend enough time to develop the relationship for him to understand that what I was doing for Middlesex was going to support him as captain. He just saw me as somebody that was a disruptor and making too many changes and it was causing him a headache and and he didn't need that because he wanted to go and play for England. So the upshot of all that was that um, the board came together and said, well, look, we either replace the captain who we just appointed or we replace the coach who we've just appointed. And in a sense, there's only one winner out of that one. So that terminated my experience with England but or with uh, with Middlesex but again it reinforced I guess a lesson for me in that you know leadership isn't easy coaching isn't easy you're not there to be popular with everybody there are some things that are going to create problems and for me the easiest choice through that season was to go with the flow of how Middlesex had been performing with the idea, wow, this is maybe a two- or three-year role, 
so that I'll, I'll, I'll just put a couple of little steps in this year and then maybe a couple of little steps in the next year and so on. But no, I decided if they brought me over to make change, then that, that was to be it. So in the end, I didn't compromise on any of my principles or values. That was the main thing. And as I said, I could have done to secure the job, but I was prepared to lose the job based on, on me not, not compromising myself because I just think once you compromise yourself, it makes it very difficult to lead anywhere after that. So, so in the end, I, I lost that role. And so coming back to Queensland and into a fifth year, I, I really felt this will be the last year and I'm not sure what's next and then the Australian job came up. So, again, it was the same, not exactly the same spiel, but I presented to them and, and also by now I had a, a coaching pedigree which certainly helped me apply for the job, given the job, came to uh, Queensland in, oh, sorry, the first test match up here in Brisbane in, in November 99 was against Pakistan. And uh, I walked into the team meeting and in the room I'd coached against everybody in there but didn't know them really, apart from one Queensland boy. There was only one Queensland boy in the room. So really the, the initial part was all about, one, my expectations of, of myself in terms of what I was going to bring to the role, my expectations of the players, what I believe that they should should be doing. And then I said, in a sense, I just believe from what I've seen outside but also what I've heard from inside, meaning that there were previously Queensland players in one-day teams and, and, and the likes of Ian Healy and so on who had come back to the Queensland fold and tell me a little bit about what was happening in the national team. So in, in my view... The team was a good team. It had just won a World Cup. It was a good team, but it wasn't a great team. And I said, basically, therefore, what we're doing is we're going to go on a journey to Everest together. So here's me painting another picture and hopefully aspirational picture. We're going to go on a journey to Everest together. And what that actually means is that we're going to change the way the game's being played. And basically, we've got the, the cattle in the room to do that. Uh, I said, I didn't know how long that would take. Um, but I thought by the time that we disbanded most of us as a group, then we would be given a label of something like that about, you know, the game changes or whatever it might have been. And I kind of related that back into the traditions of Australian cricket where there was a team in 1948 called the Invincibles and, and they were given a label because of what they'd done, uh, not only results-wise, but also for the game because they'd gone to England, which was in a state of... You know, just uh, devastation from World War Two, and, and trying to rebuild and the stories of the, the great Don Bradman, and most people would have heard of his name. You know, it, it's said about him that, you know, he played those last two seasons after the war. He was not the player he was. He was 40, health wasn't great. But he played a home series and then and then went to England on the basis that they wanted him there because they knew that would draw the crowds, that would uh, lift the country, and and so he captained that side in 1948. They had a fantastic um, tour. So from our point of view, I wanted us to not be the Invincibles and not be a Don Bradman. I wanted us to be whatever we could achieve, but again to be given a label about how we have. The legacy, I suppose, that we will have left by the time that we finished the game. So that's how I started. And then uh, I remember the, the the very very next day when we went to 
training and, and also one of the things that I would constantly do then would be on butcher's paper in those days write up various sayings or words that I thought were important and, and I'd put up this concept of Everest and the Invincibles and, and our, Steve Waugh was the captain at the time and only relatively recently appointed captain as well and and he came over to me he said, you know, I, I sort of understand what you're doing because his mantra was always about taking the road less travelled and I think he was a very good supporter of mine pre-selection for this coaching role. But he said, oh, I'm not quite sure how this is going to impact on us. And so, you know, that was the, the beginning of unfolding whatever this might look like, what this concept of the Invincibles was like. And what we did in that first test match then, I must have kind of working around reasonably well, is that we had a one of the Invincibles, Bill Brown, uh, come and present the two new test caps. One was to a, a guy, Scott Muller, and the other was to Adam Gilchrist, who were both playing their first test matches, and it was my first test match as well in Brisbane. And so, again, linking tradition and history to the present to create the future. It's an ex- extraordinary story, and, um, and of course, uh, it was to be the beginning of what was an extraordinary era in Australian cricket. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. And despite the fact that in Hard Yards in Leadership, we tend to focus on, on the tough stuff, again, for the listeners, because anything else we, we speak of needs to be put in, the, in, the, in that context, take a minute and, and, and share the successes that were to come. And I know it wasn't all successes, but you had quite a lot, right? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, it was, it was never all that smooth sailing. In fact, uh, you know, the, the second test match of the series, we were in all sorts of bother. We managed to get across the line. But suddenly there was controversy around, you know, uh, someone, a microphone on the ground, and, you know, there was some thing said about, you know, this, this person can't bowl, can't feel, can't bat. So that was a comment from one Australian player caught on a microphone about another Australian player. Now, you know, there's lots of conjecture about who said what to whom, but suddenly, you know, we won the first test match, but suddenly out of the second test match, apart from us winning, there was this internal controversy. Yeah, all is not wealth. (laughs) No, no. And it, it lingered because it was, you know, it was captured, I guess, and, and, and replayed by a number of uh, media outlets. And, and so those sorts of things were always part and parcel of the team, whether we were winning or they would get highlighted more and more, as we know the media can do when you're losing. You know, everybody's got the sort of knives poised for you. While you're winning, the, the, they can't actually begin to, to plunge the daggers, but as soon as you start to lose a few games, then the daggers uh, come from everywhere. So that was uh, an interesting one to begin to see what the dynamics of the team was. And and I suppose what I chose to do was obviously 
trying to work out how to deal with that right at the time. As I said, you've got to deal with the present. But I wanted to give myself some time to, to sort of really come to grips with what this culture of the Australian team was about. So we went through that test series and then we went to New Zealand and played a test one-day series over there, winning virtually everything uh, apart from a one-day game. And by that stage, it was about nine months into the role and, and so I, I'd, I'd got it pretty clearly in my head then, uh, confirmed a number of things that I had thought from the outside, but it also highlighted a couple of other things that, that I hadn't been aware of and and, uh, and saw and therefore believed was changed. So what I did then was put this report together and sent it to the CEO of the organisation at the time and, and I hadn't met him. Sorry, I had met him when, when I did the interview and then he came to one or two of the games and just casually said hello and nothing much else. So I hadn't really met him as a, as a person and how he operated. So I sent him the report. He called me down to his office a couple of weeks later and uh, his first question to me was, did you use spell check? So I'm going back to um, 1999 here. Uh, early 2000, right? So did you use spell check? And I said, uh, no, I didn't use spell check. And I thought, I think he, he, you and I are going to get on pretty well because I, I like a person with a dry sense of humour. Um, and then he said, you know, you use the word incumbent. I said, yeah, I did. He said, you know, you can use that two ways. And I said, I did know that. He said, but did you know you use it the wrong way? I said, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so uh, I'm beginning to scratch me a little bit and then and then he just, wham, hit me straight between the eyes with, uh, you must be the most unhappy person in the world. And this is, CO, this is our first meeting. You must be the most unhappy person in the world. And I'm... I'm then, I'm now realizing this is no dry sense of humor. This is, uh, CEO on a particular bent. And I, I don't know whether I said or whether I thought, you know, here I am, coach of the Australian cricket team, which is the next best thing to, to play for Australia. We've just won nine test matches in a row and we've won whatever it was, 15 out of 16 one days. And so our results were outstanding. Um, and he's saying, I must be the most unhappy person in the world. So then he said, never, ever give me a report like this again because what I'd done in there, as I said, was list down all the things that needed change from people to systems, basically people and systems, and there are a number of things that sat under the systems, you know. And uh, and uh, he said, yeah, never, ever give me a report like this again. All I, all I want is some, some basics, that's it, and, and away you go. So, you know, that really took me aback because I was supposedly this coach that was going to take the game to, you know, the new millennium. Um, and, and it just took me to gradually get probably about 60% of those changes. It took me two, three or four years where I was a selector taken off being a selector, which is probably a good thing anyway. And also it was a confidential report, which was leaked to our team manager uh, who then on our, my first tour to India confronted me with that, with a couple of the other personnel that I'd recommended be uh, replaced and told fairly and squarely that, you know, I'm, I'm a traitor, I'm, I'm uh, you know, someone that shouldn't be in, in this role, all you're doing is, you know, really trying to cut our career short and so on. That was interesting times. That was interesting times and, uh, you know, I guess learning how to, 
that was in the background. My job was coaching the team. So I again, pretty much the same as I did with the Bulls in that instance with Alan Border, went back into making sure that the training sessions, the preparation, the player support, everything around trying to make that team really hum was working as well as possible and all the other things that, that I believed really needed change and would make a huge difference in the team. I just had to chip away at or work another way to get some of those things in place. A lot of challenges in that. I guess, again, just exploring some of the challenges of being in in that kind of pressure cooker of a, of a role. Obviously, when you're winning, like you say, the media and everyone has to keep their knives at bay, when you have a few losses, then you're not just dealing with the pressure of the loss. It's all of the media noise that surrounds that. What's it like when you're in that situation? You know, as coach, you're obviously trying to you know, look after the kind of, I guess, the headspace of the players and whatever else, and you're trying to move from, from some, some losses to winning. But you've got this media furor that's sort of going on on the outside. How do you deal with that? Yes, well, I mean, initially it's, it's a pretty lonely place. I mean, I think as it's an old cliche, it's lonely at the top, but it was probably a lonely place there because I really didn't have what I might term allies in it. And the media to some degree, well, that's um, a real intrusion and always difficult to deal with. The harder part is, is internally, you know, so therefore I had people in the support stuff, not the players, they weren't aware of, you know, the report and, and uh, the ramifications of the report, but it was the other internal people who that was the difficult part because there was no one there that I could turn to and have a bit of a conversation with because, you know, they distrusted me and not that I, I, I didn't like them as people, I just didn't think they were the right people for the role that, the role demanded into the future. So it was, it was a lonely place. I suppose um, I stuck to to myself and, as I said, interacted with the players and the training and the games. And the, You know, there's, there's enough to keep you occupied. There's no doubt about that. And then, you know, when I got off tour, you know, I, I could at least get home and chat to my wife and, and maybe chat to a couple of friends back here who I knew would listen and, and maybe provide some sort of support and advice. So, but eventually, I, I gradually got an assistant coach on, and and uh, you know uh, another uh, fielding coach. And and once I began to get a couple of those people around me, even though the other stuff was still there, it just kind of released and relieved me of of some of those internal tensions that I guess I'd I'd carried for a while, but. It still came down to, I think it still came down to the fact that we were winning games. You know, we were winning dressing room. We were we were doing things that other people weren't doing. So it was going to be very difficult for, for anybody to mount a, a strong case against me to have me removed. Albeit that, you know, I knew that was sort of bubbling along or, or that was there, but, but it was about just getting in dealing with that foot in the present and making sure that that was, that was actually as good as it could be. Yeah, makes complete sense. And, John, you know, as you look back to the, that time that you were head coach for the Australian team, if you were to pick out one thing that, that you look back on and say, that was the thing that I personally found the hardest, it might not have been, you know, something that was necessarily, like, so well-known or whatever, but, like, I'm curious to have you share with the listeners 
what was the thing that you found hardest in that journey while you were head coach of the Australian cricket team? Well, as you say, you know, a couple of things spring to mind. One is within the team, you know, there are players that you get closer to than others. And again, as a leader, you know, it's up to you to maintain what I term a buffer zone between you and the player. But for those who you're closer to, that buffer zone is is somewhat narrower than, than others. And that's the hard part when some of those players that you're closer to uh, either have to get dropped or there's some discipline, you know, real discipline required, disciplinary action required, some real bad news that, that you need to pass on. And I think they're always the, the hard ones to communicate that to. There's no easy way of saying that or doing that. So I think that's always that was always a, a real a really hard one to do to deal with. And then the other part was you know we were away on average 250 nights. A year, so even if you're in Australia, you're not home here with your family, and I think, I think that's an incredibly difficult one. Albeit that, you know, you, when you leave home, and and that's literally, you know, you, you see your family goodbye, maybe at home or the airport or wherever it is, and then you join your team, then you're almost then you know, cross over that boundary from family to my new family. And you stay in that new family till you leave that family and rejoin your your own family. But there are so many things that while you're away with the cricket family that you miss around your own family, whether that's birthdays, whether it's a first day at school, whether it's, you know, they've had a, a fight at school or something or been bullied or whatever it might be, you know, you weren't around for that. And, and as I said before, right at the outset, the only way that I was able to do my job or stay in that job for as long as I did was because my wife was incredibly supportive but incredibly organised and just there for her family to make sure that they got through every day the best way they could. So, you know, those, those two things probably stand out, you know, just very quickly as, you know, some of the hardest things. I mean, we obviously lost a... And Ashes in England in 2005. And that was difficult being in, in that situation, going back to talking about, you know, how Australian teams were expected to win. Well, here was England uh, all over us and, and eventually we lose the series. And, and, of course, it was time to sack the coach. And I'd been there six years and we'd won virtually everything up until that point. But that was all forgotten because we'd lost to the Poms and you can't do that. So I then had to come back and, and uh, work out whether or not I still wanted to continue coaching. I suppose uh, I always relate this because I think it's so important for leaders of any, any organisation. But So I had to go to the board and justify why I should still be coached. But to do that, I had to answer three questions myself first. One was, could I still make a difference, right? So you remember I said I part of my philosophy was about aspiration and vision and so on and picture. So did I believe that I could create a picture for this team going forward that would be inspirational for them? That was the first thing. Second thing then was, well, even if I could, even if I did believe that, did I still really want to, you know, did I still really want to be away from family? Did I still really want to face the media every day? Did I still want to go to training every day? All those sorts of things, you know. So in other words, um, did I just really have the passion and the fire inside to 
to keep doing what I was doing. So that was two. And then the third question was if I, if those two were okay, I still had to find out from the players, given we'd lost, did they still want me as coach? You know, and uh, so I, I talked to my senior players and checked in with them, and they they said yes. So I'd answered yes, yes, and yes. So then I was able to go down to the board with a clear picture of what the next twenty months looked like, how we were going to do it, you know, what the vision was, what the the strategies were, you know, how that came out in a planning sense and a budgeting sense, and all those sorts of things, and presented that, and was given the opportunity to do that. So that was a, an incredibly difficult time in terms of your job, albeit that, as I said before, I'd, I'd faced that in England, I'd faced that in India where I, I was sacked as coach over there because of principle, but here it was more about not so much the principles, although they were part and parcel of mm-hmm. it, but it was really just questioning myself uh, about the role, the job, my suitability, family, a whole range of things to, to come to a conclusion about what I should do if I went to the board. Oh, fascinating insights. There's so many lessons that um, I'm sure people, as they listen to this, uh, can reflect on in, in their own career. The, the sharing has been, uh, has been amazing, John, which I, I so appreciate. We have a, a, a tradition in, in Hard Yards, which is as we, as we move towards a conclusion, I have a, a, a simple little question that, that, that I get to ask, and it goes something like this. So you're at your workspace, you look up, there's, there's a wall or something kind of like across from you. I give you notionally a, a bucket of paint and a paintbrush, and you get to paint some words up on there that you're going to that you're going to see every time you, you look up. What words do you write? Probably the symbol that I, I use in my business, and that's what's your Everest. So what's your Everest means, you know, for an individual, what am I aspiring to be? For a leader, what's my legacy? And then for an organisation, it's about how do we dominate our marketplace? So what's your Everest? Nice, nice. Crisp and uh, and relates back to uh, to much of what you've been sharing, John. If people want to get in contact with you, perhaps get you in um, to talk to you know their their corporate teams or whatever. How do they find you these days? Yes, look, the best place would be a website, BuchananCoaching.com, or obviously LinkedIn is is a place so they can find me, John Buchanan there, or I do have the the company site, Buchanan Success Coaching but uh, they're probably the easiest places to find me. Fantastic. Um, I want to say a massive thanks to you. That your shares have been incredibly authentic and and I'm sure really relatable to to so many people. You know, we, we explored your journey in the world of cricket, but it was really your journey in the world of leadership and that's what all of our listeners are on in their own journeys and, uh, and, and you sharing your hard yards, I'm sure, is going to be extraordinarily helpful for people hearing those stories and recognising that a lot of what they go through is what we all go through. And a a massive thanks um, from me um, on behalf of all the listeners. Yeah, thanks very much, Wayne. Thanks for the time. And, yes, as you say, hopefully there are one or two things that your listeners can take away that will help them in whatever their journey is and whatever their careers might hold for them in the future. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.